family-owned shop in Loganville, Sosby's Garage, for all your automotive repair needs. We service all makes and models, Ford and domestic. We repair engines, alternators, brakes, alignments, AC systems, and more, using certified technicians with over 90 years of combined experience. We also offer same-day service for some repairs. Sosby's Garage, 200 Bay Creek Road in Loganville. Dependable, honest, and fair. Look us up on Google or Facebook. We'll take good care of you. Broadcasting live from the Subaru of Gwinnett studio inside the Sonesta Gwinnett Place Atlanta Hotel. It's time for Case in Point, presented by Paradigm Security Services. We are the cornerstone of security in the Southeast. Hey, everybody. I'm your host, Rick Strong, president of Paradigm Security Services, and welcome to Case in Point. And we are excited to be with you today on Business Radio X. We're coming to you from the Subaru of Gwinnett Studio, located in the beautiful Sinesta Gwinnett Place Atlanta Hotel in Duluth, Georgia. If you would, any, pa- any pro- uh, platform you're listening to or that you listen to later, please go on and subscri- hit that subscribe button so that uh, we'll all know that, uh, that you've been there. Each week we plan to feature businesses and people, especially in the Gwinnett, Atlanta area, especially those that serve Gwinnett. And while all businesses have security issues, not all are about physical security. We will touch on that and related aspects of security through the course of each show. My guest today, I'm very happy to have the Honorable Judge Kathy Schrader, Gwinnett County Superior Court Judge. And may I call you Kathy during this interview? Of course, yes. Great. Please. Make it easier. Um, Kathy, I always like to start with uh, who is Kathy Schrader? Who is the person I'm talking to? Because a lot of people, you know, this is about you and about the government, about courts, about the legal system. But like I say, it's about you too. And people like to know who they're talking about. So where'd you come from? Where were you born? How did, you know, what'd you go through to get here? And why in the world did you want to be a superior court judge? Well, gracious, Rick, that is quite a question. (laughs) I'm glad that we have the rest of the day to talk about that. There you go. (laughs) Well, I am Georgia-bred, Georgia-born, Georgia-educated. I was born at Crawford W. Long Hospital, which is now part of the Emory Hospital system down in the Atlanta area. I uh, am a product of the DeKalb County public school system. I was... uh, a um, student at Roland Elementary, mm-hmm. graduated from Towers High School, then went and uh, obtained my undergrad degree at the University of Georgia. Go dogs! Go I was dogs! For that. Oh yes, <laughs> um, my family really—we uh, are strong, strong bulldog supporters. Awesome. And um, then I obtained my law degree at Mercer University in Macon. While I was in Macon, I was blessed to be able to intern with a law firm in Lawrenceville, um, which at the time it was Tennant, Davidson, Thompson, and Sweeney. Uh, Mike Tennant, Gerald Davidson, Lee Thompson, and Vicki Sweeney. And fell in love with them. I fell in love with the way they practiced law. And I fell in love with Lawrenceville and Gwinnett County. Couldn't ask for a better mentor than Mike. Uh, uh, Amen. And uh, so as a result of that, um, I was employed with them for a few years after law school. 
And when I started my family, I, uh, I left there and started my own firm. I've always had a practice in Gwinnett County. I've always um, been involved in the Gwinnett County Bar Association and various nonprofits in the area ever since I um, landed here. I, I, I joke around with people. Um, I dated my husband for almost five years before we got married. Unusual. Um, he, uh, I recognized that he had a high level of patience to be able to wait for me through law school. So he, that, that's good husband material. And I actually graduated from law school on a Sunday, and our wedding was that next Saturday. Wow. And we located here in Lawrenceville and um or yes here in lawrenceville and lived there for a few years before we moved to a bigger house as our family expanded and um gwinnett county has been where we worship it has been where we have uh, raised our children our children are products of the public parks um, baseball teams softball teams, football teams, cheerleading program, and um, my, my oldest son has actually also um, located here in um, Gwinnett County. We love the area. We have dedicated our also community service. My husband and I own a, a small business where we employ lots of um, uh, uh, primarily college-age kids, and um, we have a few uh, full-time employees, but we also have uh, the Kona Ice franchises in the area, and I don't know if you're familiar with that, but Absolutely. That, it's a fundraiser for schools, churches, which is what we've served all of our careers, and uh, just love the area, love the people, and um, getting back to my legal career, I became involved in the Gwinnett County Bar Association within a few weeks of obtaining my law license and starting practicing law. And uh, came up through the ranks of all the officers. I was, uh, I'm a past president of the Bar Association. I also uh, um, had an opportunity to build the outreach programs there to serve foster children foundations, um, domestic violence foundations, um, parents of um, children who struggle with disabilities, all of that, and um, have always had a love just to make sure that there's a collaboration between businesses, between churches, between professions and individuals, just to make sure that we're all partnering together to make the community better. And um, I, as a result of that, I was recognized by um, the state and appointed by Governor Deal, no, I'm sorry, Governor Purdue, and then reappointed by Governor Deal to a committee that oversees children in crisis and juvenile justice. And um, of course, with my legal framework, uh, I represent a lot of families in crisis, children in crisis throughout my legal career before I was elected full-time to the bench. Um, my leadership was recognized there and was also appointed to the Federal Advisory Committee on Juvenile Justice and served as one of two Georgia delegates on that committee and actually sat around in the conference room with stakeholders from all over the country talking about how we needed to swing the pendulum back from sending everybody to jail no matter what and uh, 
building a better restorative model. And so that's been sort of a driving force for me once I was elected in 2012 to the Superior Court. That's actually one of the promises I made to the voters in 2012, was that I would treat every person in the courtroom with honor, dignity, individuality, equality, and make sure that I heard the facts of their case and I implemented a strategy that would not only hold them accountable, but also equip them with resources and tools to try to keep them out of the justice system. I don't think the justice system is a place where people need to be negatively and punitively impacted for the rest of their life. I think it's a place where people land when they're in crisis. People come to court or they find themselves caught up in the justice system not because they want to be, but because they have to be. Correct. You don't wake up one day and say, hey, I think, uh, you know, I, I want to pay a lot of money to hire a lawyer to make my life miserable, miserable. in a situation. Yep. People, it, it, people are in crisis when they are in the justice system. Well, there's a lot of talk about, you know, justice is blind. Well, yeah, it's supposed to be blind, but today there's a lot of people that have agendas in there that try to work those agendas through the justice system, and those people a lot of times are judges, which... You know, there's been a lot of talk, and it's really, there's a lot of it going on today where the agendas are so obvious rather than the legal system. One of the things you talk about, the object is not to make people's life miserable for the rest of their life. It's to deal justice with compassion and empathy, and to a certain extent, you know, the sympathy has to be there, but you can't let that override things. You can feel sorry as heck for somebody, but choices, consequences, but not to overwhelmingly do something where they can never get another job they never get you know everything is negative some people it works out that way because the what they do is so bad but it's choices consequences and you have to look at it from the way the law is says to do it not personal bias involved and I think that's what you're trying to say well I can share a couple of yes. Uh, I, I can share a couple of examples with you. Um, what the data from the Department of Justice and all Pew Research and all of these organizations that take all of the data from cases that are heard, who's involved in the cases, in, for example, in the criminal justice system, what the charges are what a person's criminal history has been, what the sentence ended up being, how long they ended up serving, where they served. They keep all of this data and they analyze it and they try to figure out, are we doing the best thing that we should be doing for our communities? <laughs> and the answer historically has been no. And that's why you started reading about and hearing about justice reform. Um, criminal justice reform. Those people who really don't like justice reform, you'll hear terms like hug a thug and you're not tough enough. We need to be tough on crime. And yes, we need to be tough on certain crime, but we really need to be smarter about how we're ad addressing the um, criminal behavior. I think that's what happened with uh, 
this president's reform bills that he pushed through or the reform legislation that he, I guess, signed, the executive orders, to where actually there's been a lot of talk through the years about doing something about criminal justice and making some kind of reform. And it's finally, finally, some of it's at least happened, and it's it's benefited a lot of our minority population, especially because, you know, that's where the highest, you know, like it or not, that's facts. That's where the highest activities are, so they're impacted more. So you've got to you've got to be able to deal with them. Well, and what all this research and data has indicated is, if we address and try to assess the reason or reasons that people are engaging in criminal behavior and connect the individuals with resources that address those reasons. Mm -hmm. Then we reduce recidivism. Families are normally restored. The the individuals become tax-paying, working, um, upstanding citizens in their community, and it's a big win. Crime is reduced. And and people are like, well, why does that matter? Well, when you, what people really, the dot that a lot of people don't connect is taxpayers are the ones footing the bill for an individual in the prison system. It costs money every day when somebody's in jail or somebody's in Mm -hmm. prison. And somebody has to pay. And somebody has to pay, and that's the taxpayer. Compared to having that individual get educated, receive services, job training, life skills training, whatever kind of training, and then they become a taxpayer themselves, it's a double win for our community. And, you know, uh, some people just, you know, they don't, they can't understand or they haven't been exposed to the fact that either one of these programs costs money but in the long run the program of restorative justice costs so much less because the human impact the restorative justice model is for in nonviolent offenders who are usually struggling with substance abuse or mental health disorders or frankly haven't been taught mm-hmm. how to not engaging criminal behavior and i know that that statement may be shocking to people but not everybody has a two-parent home where they're loved on and they're provided for and they're taught their and morals they're, and values are actually taught and they're not and they're mentored um mm-hmm. i have had people in one of my accountability courts because i started the parent accountability court in gwinnett county and i presided over the drug treatment court in Gwinnett, one of the divisions in drug treatment court for four years. And I've had people in both of those courts, when I've taught them and mentored them and explained to them that a schedule where you take care of your physical body, make sure you get enough sleep, make sure you're eating right, make sure that you're not watching too much negative news or listening to too much negative material on YouTube or on social media or whatever because that really drives your emotions as well. They've never been taught that. And the, the I, I mean, I've had individuals say, just getting myself on a sleep schedule has made a remarkable difference in the way I feel physically. And it, it, it's shocking to people that are used to having that kind of 
experience or education or parenting or mentoring in their life already to understand that we have a lot of people, a lot of youth, a lot of adolescents, a lot of young um, adults that have never been taught basic skills. And when and what happens is those are the ones that get caught in the justice system, mm-hmm. either through divorces. Um, a, a, you know, the studies show that when there are when there's a high acrimonious divorce, the parents don't understand the impact that they're having on their children for generations to come. Especially if they button heads all the time and each one talking bad about that child. And guess or what? Or about the other one to that child. And the studies show and the data proves that those children are the one that will thrive on destructive behavior. What does that mean? Drugs, sex, promiscuity, um, and and that eventually leads to crime, and that eventually leads into the justice system. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that I've implemented strategies in my courtroom to help families that are going through a high acrimonious divorce to break that cycle. Because if they can break that cycle of that fighting and that demeaning behavior towards each other, then they can protect and prevent their children from slipping into this destructive behavior. And that's part of justice reform too, because historically um, courts have been about, let's just get them divorced and get them out. Well, eventually, if you don't if a judge doesn't have the appropriate strategy in place during the divorce to make sure that these high acrimonious parents are connected to the right resources that I've built partnerships with in the community, connected to connect them to the right resources to educate them and equip them to be able to talk civilly with each other, resolve their uh, conflicts together, eventually they will come back into the courtroom. And the more a um, family returns to the courtroom arguing over their children, the more destructive it is for their children. So, Absolutely. Um, and and that's, that's one of the skills that I brought to the bench in, in 2012. And one of the promises I made when I was running back in 2012 was that I would be the judge that would interrupt a lot of the historical applications that most people think about when they think about judge judges they don't think um people don't realize how important a judge is until they find themselves in, in front a of one. <laughs> that's right and historically you really don't that a lot of people don't even think about a judge except for on like the national level the supreme court or you know one of these appellate courts that's making this um a decision over some really high profile case they don't think you know they don't think about the impact that judges have on a local level because um the average person never goes before a judge unless it's a speeding ticket or something like that right 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 and nowadays you don't even go there right you well and nowadays you can't even get into the courtroom exactly Um, that's true and you know that uh, I think that the uh, pandemic is really going to shift the way the general public looks at courts too, because over the past few months, people who might have before all of this um, happened, and er- everything, every approach that we make to businesses, to um, shopping, at where everything has now shifted more where it's virtual, people are shifting the way that they may have approached court to begin with because the general public who may have had a conflict and who may have gone to court over the past few months couldn't 
are finding different ways to resolve their conflict, which is a uh, which is a good, it's a thing. good thing. Well, let me ask you a few questions here. Uh, one of the things I guess is why are judges important? What is it? In a, you know, it's kind of a short answer. What is what? What makes them so important? Well, by the time someone gets in front of a judge, they are at a such a bad place in their life that they need a a, a complete stranger to make a decision over their objectively yeah family over their money or over their freedom and let's just think about that so judges are important because you want someone who has a heart for the people that are in front of them you want a judge that has a clear um, reputation and understanding of the issues and the application but you also want a judge that understands that what they rule on in that courtroom for that family has far-reaching impact on that individual. It can have very unintended consequences. Yeah, on that individual, on everybody that supports that individual, family, their friends, their church community, as well as broad-reaching impact on the community at large. For the rest of their life. Yes. You know, it, you, know you mentioned something about... Uh, teaching people to do it a different way. W. Clement Stone many, many years ago wrote a book called The Power of Positive Thinking. You know, more people would read that. It's just a matter of if you're always wrapped up in that negative thought process, your life's going to be negative for the most part. And people need to be given a second chance. I firmly believe that. In my world of the security business, I know that I've had people come in and want to get employed they can't get a job, can't do anything. And we've got to be very, very careful because, you know, hiring felons is not a good thing in security on, 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 as a general rule. But sometimes you get that feeling that somebody really wants to change and do better. I had one guy come in with me many years ago that brought his son in there because he was babysitting his son. And he was wanting to change his life around and be a, be a model and mentor for his son in a different way. And I thought about it a while, looked it over, and he was a felon. He'd been in prison. And I looked at him, and I listened to him, and I looked at the kid, and I thought, you know, I'm going to give this guy a chance. Turned out to be one of the best people I ever hired, and he's moved on to other jobs now. But he at least uh, he turned himself around because he wanted to for his child. And sometimes people getting that second chance, they appreciate it, and they do really turn around. Well, and that's exactly right, because he was blessed to have you have an open heart for the fact that nobody's perfect. Well, I've been given second chance so many and, times. And so, um, and, you know, felony is a scary word to some people, because mm-hmm. when you say felon, you don't think about maybe somebody who has gotten addicted to substances and they got caught with a substance that qualifies for a charge of felon Mm -hmm. and so uh, you know i i do a lot of work in the recovery industry because i recognize that most people are in the justice system because they're struggling with substances and then most people struggle with substances because the, uh, various things, trauma, or things in their past. But, the you know, a lot of individuals are now convicted felons and can't find a job because they struggled with substance abuse sometime in their past. And, you know... So the only way they can make a living is what? 
continue being a felon. That's right. And do what they were doing. And that's part of what the data, I mean, you know, this isn't like the Kathy Schrader model. This is the data from the Department of Justice and all a lot of other research firms who have researched this is there are different classes of felons right we've got the seven deadlies where you know violent very violent offenders but then we have the nonviolent offenders and there's different classes of that yep. but you don't see that when somebody goes to apply for a job all you see is all the convicted felony convicted felon and it follows people around for the rest of their lives and it in, negatively impacts them even though 10 or 15 years ago They've paid their debt. They haven't gotten into trouble anymore. But here we are. We can't get a good job because we're a convicted felon. Well, sometimes it takes help to break that pattern. Right. And if you can't get that help, the pattern will continue. Well, what are your credentials to be reelected? Well. That would be a good one. Yeah. I, uh, you know, I was asked that yesterday. And this is what I told a reporter yesterday. In 2012... I made a promise, like I shared earlier, that I would treat every single individual in my courtroom with dignity, honor, equality, and respect. And I've kept that promise. I promised that I would listen to their case and I would create an outcome for them to give them an op- the second chance, just like we talked about, an opportunity to be connected with resources, to be, be connected with um, partners and mentors in the community to make sure that we addressed whatever caused them to come into the system in the first place. That I would save taxpayers money by reducing recidivism and keeping people out of the justice system, that I would keep people out of prison that des- didn't deserve to be in prison. Now, there uh, there are people who deserve to be in jail and to be in jail for a long time. And Absolutely. I have, and I have sent them there. Um, I explained the the um, difference between because the question that I do get a lot is well how do how can you tell who needs to go to jail for a long time and who doesn't and the way his remorse is a good sign well <laughs> I explain it to like um, you know a principal in a school you know the first time a kid comes to the principal's office you don't expel them you teach them. And you equip them, and you give them a chance to prove that they've learned their lesson. Now, the fourth time somebody comes to the principal's office, and the reason that they've gotten there, it has, you know, the first time was one thing, the second time was worse, the third time was even worse, and then the fourth time is really horrible. Um, it's time to expel that student out of the school to make sure that you're protecting the, other the rest of the students. And it's the same application. Wise judges who pay attention to the people in their courtroom can tell the difference. And I'm one of those judges. Um, and that I'm one of those judges because of my experience of practicing law as long as I did before I took the bench, of watching, paying attention, and learning more as I've sat on the bench. Plus, I take copious notes. Um, I'm very bad with names, but I'm really good with faces. <laughs> That's me. <laughs> and when somebody walks out of the holding cell, I can recognize their face. And I know, mm, okay. You've been here before. <laughs> You've been here before. You might not have learned your lesson. I'm in, you know, I, I, I'm already aware that, okay, 
Is this somebody that's going to need a harsher sentence this time? And um, it, it's a it's a gradual application. You don't just throw the book at somebody who has um, been arrested for shoplifting and they have methamphetamine in their pocket and, you know, they may have had a weapon in their car that, that doesn't belong to them and they're driving another car and all of this stuff. I mean, you you know, it's, it's kind of like the kid who the, the kid that you know kind of struggles at mm-hmm. school, but then they show up and something's not right and you send them to the um, principal's office. Well, do you just kick that kid out or do you equip them so they can learn their lesson, prove that they've learned their lesson, and be a better student? Do you deal with the cause or do you deal with the results that you're looking at? Well, I, I, I deal with the cause and the result. Well, that's what I mean. Yes. That's the um, question you have to ask. Right. I, I ask every individual who's in my courtroom the first time, especially those that have been convicted or, or not convicted but charged with a crime, how did you find yourself in my courtroom standing in front of me, sometimes in shackles, sometimes in a jumpsuit? How did you find yourself here? That important question, why? And then... Um, you know, there's other questions that are, have already been asked by the time I get to ask questions like that. And so I'll, I'll have other facts about education level, about where they live, have they been employed, things like that. Well, you know, when you're interviewing somebody, if somebody's had four or five jobs in a year, that begs a question. Yep. If somebody's had a few addresses in a year that begs a question a few names too and so <laughs> you know you you gather this experience in order to be able to ask the right questions and then implement the right strategies and it's the same thing with families um i uh practiced a lot of family law in um in, in my 25-year legal career before i was elected full-time in 2012 and I uh, also would make sure that I was up to date on the latest data about the best parenting plans for divorced parents, uh, the best strategies for children of divorce. What your options are. And what, what the best options are given every, the, the individual facts and circumstances of that family. Because every family is different. And as you know, we have a very diverse population here in Gwinnett County. So you, I, I think a well-versed judge also needs to be up to date on what the cultural beliefs and influences are of the parties that are in front of them because um, you do a disservice to the couples if you're not aware of that and I work a lot with the Korean community with the Caribbean community with the Hispanic community and so you know um, all of those communities they have family conflicts as well. And if you kind of understand culturally the um, beliefs about marriage and divorce, mm-hmm. you can help the families a lot more as you're creating their strategy, their exit strategy. Learning, the how to, learning how to comply and conform to within what the system is here that that can be yes. legal yes. and address it. Well, I know that you do some I'm running out of time, but I've still got more I want to ask you. So... Um, let me ask you, 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 I know you do a lot of community involvement. Give me a quick rundown on some of the stuff that you're involved in. Wow, okay. Um, well, I um, so 
support through volunteer work, um, many of the recovery uh, community places here in Gwinnett County. Um, I've been very involved in helping um, Navigate Recovery uh, launch what they've built over at Safe Harbor and soon the women's treatment facility up in um, right over the Hall County line, which is going to be Lightweight Recovery. And I've also uh, been very involved in food pantries, uh, building teams to help pass out food, especially during the pandemic. Um, I, I don't know if you're aware of this, but Partnership Gwinnett actually recognized me a couple of years ago as the individual influencer of the year. Absolutely, I do. Okay. And one of the reasons for that is because I built partnerships with the educational facilities, with some of the re-entry programs with GRIP and GGRA and um, treatment facilities, churches in the area to support people who were going through the system. And, um, you know, that, that has been great because I think that uh, a lot of the individuals who have benefited from that strategy are now turning around and helping other individuals coming back into the community. GRIP has a good good record for that are you familiar with mosaic yes yeah we do we do some work for mosaic on kind of a help out basis excellent we try to give them just break even type point and pay the officers and let them you know that is such a such an important thing with mosaic and working with women yes and different people that are abused yes out of darkness and and you know i well since you brought it up Mm -hmm. the young women that would come into my courtroom who'd been charged with prostitution i would not i would not allow them to uh enter into a guilty plea i would um uh have them partner with or have a representative of out of darkness street grace or somewhere like that meet with them at the jail i would you know when i found out that the charge was uh, prostitution or um, they had uh, been basically um, selling their bodies mm-hmm. to support their drug use out to, yes, to drugs. for yeah. you know for, i would make sure that these women were connected with the resources necessary um, to make sure that when they did enter a plea that they had somewhere to go they had a support system waiting for and them. a way out uh, yes Absolutely. Want to ask you one more question? I got a bunch more, but I want to ask you one more question. The ballot confusion uh, during the August 11th runoff. Yes. Tell us what you're where you're sitting on that and what you think about it. Well, I uh, it, it, I became aware on July 20th that some people were going to the elections office to vote, and of course, most people will pick a party to vote. When, when at the primary you have to select a party that, for the ticket that you want to vote, yeah. vote for. Well, um, in part of the um, community, there's not a runoff, a party runoff. So the voter was just being told, sorry, there's no ballot for you. And um, some of my supporters that went there specifically to vote for me would call me and say, I thought I was supposed to vote for you on August the 11th, but there's no ballot for you. And I'm like, and they would share with me okay i was told there was no ballot for me i'm like go back in and tell them you want a nonpartisan ballot then yep. and so i've tried to build a public awareness of the fact that if you go to an early voting 
place or if you go to your precinct on August the 11th and they tell you there's not a ballot for you, ask them for a nonpartisan ballot um, because historically the judges race, which is a nonpartisan race, has been on all the party ballots. Exactly. But for whatever reason in this it's been separated. Yeah, in this um, election, since there's not a um, party runoff in part of the county, they did not generate that party ballot. So I'm just trying to build awareness of that and make sure that anyone that wants to vote for me where they don't have their preferred party ballot to make sure that they ask for a nonpartisan ballot. Well, Judd, let me ask you one. Um, you know, if somebody wants to find out more about you, more about your campaign, the 11th is coming very quickly next Tuesday. Yes. Um, wh- where would they go? What would they do? What do they punch into the computer? Or who do they talk to or call or whatever? Well, I'm on all social media platforms um, except TikTok, <laughs> thank goodness. Yeah, you and a bunch of others lately, and going to be more. <laughs> yes, and uh, then I am. I have a website. It's Judge Kathy Schrader, and my I spell my last name S C H R A D E R. JudgeKathySchrader.com. It's real easy. There's a place there where you can contact me, send me a note, or uh, send me a, a message on Facebook. I try to be as responsive as I can respond to people within 24 hours of uh, receiving their messages well thank you so much for coming on thank you for Uh, having me a great conversation i hope that people you know one of the things i stress on this election that's very important is not necessarily the who you vote for but vote informed you know reach out don't just vote for the person that your mama's voting for your sister's voting for or my boyfriend says this or my husband or wife say this Go out there, research, dig into it, find out what they've done, who they are, where they stand, and vote as an informed voter. Whatever you do, if you're informed and it fits in with your beliefs, then that's the way that it should be. And that's why there's two different parties and why it's separate. So thank you again for joining us on Case in Point, presented by Paradigm Security Services. Remember, you can join us live every Wednesday at 11.30 in the morning, or you can listen to our radio show anytime you want by going to businessradiox.com, clicking on the Gwinnett Studio, and then click on Case in Point. We're on just about every social platform that, in fact, as far as I know, we're on every social platform. And if you would, when you do go, please hit that subscribe button so that I'll know that you're there and we can uh, maybe reach out to you. Join us next week at 1130 when we will talk with business leaders about their businesses and related security issues in today's world. And let's face it, voting and our privilege to vote is one of the most things that one of the biggest things that keeps our nation secure. Thanks again to my guests, Judge Kathy Schrader. And for our producers, Mike, Trey, AJ, Amanda. Um, I guess Trey's not here anymore. But I'm Rick Strawn, and remember at Paradigm Security Services. We cover more than just your assets.